Well, good morning. For about six months, around the beginning of 2014, I started having a similar conversation over and over. About once a month, I would get a call from someone in our church, someone who was a a regular attender, uh, that would be something along the lines of, Brad, can we get coffee? And if you don't know, if you're, if you're newer to our church, that's something you can do anytime. If you ever want to get coffee, you just want to meet me or chat about something, my email is in the back of the bulletin, and we'll go get coffee or soda or milkshake or whatever it is that you like on me. So um, it's actually, actually on me. It's on the church through me, but it's on us. So I would love to meet you and get to know you a little bit better or catch up. So that's always available to you if it's something you want to do, but for at least six months, I would get a call from someone in our church who wanted to get coffee, and I'd say, sure. And then when we would get together, the conversation would go something like this, Brad, I've got to be honest with you. I don't know if I can do this anymore. And of course, my question would be, do what? Be a Christian. I'm about to throw out the whole thing. And then my friend will begin to tell me why. And here's some of the examples, and I've changed the details, so there's no way you'll know who this would be, but of some of the things that people would talk to me about. People would say, say, say things like this, I've been praying for my sister to recover from clinical depression for six years, and it's not happening. The things that inspired me in my faith when I first decided to follow Jesus just don't make sense to me anymore. I can't condemn whole groups of people to hell or discriminate against them in my day-to-day life. Now that my life is back on track, I don't know if I need this. Honestly, I had so many conversations with people in such a short period of time, I started to wonder if I was doing something wrong. Because usually you like to think of people coming to the church that you are responsible mainly for leading as part of a team, but it kind of like feels like sometimes that this is my main responsibility, you want to see them growing in their faith. You want to see their faith deepening, and it sort of felt like people's faith was being shaken. I was like, what's going on here? About the same time, um, I was having my own personal crisis, not so much about uh, whether I believed and wanted to follow Jesus, but about what was next. We had just finished purchasing and remodeling this building. We moved in, and It was like, okay, we did this huge project. Now where are we going? And I didn't know the answer. So you can imagine I started to feel a little depressed about that. Again, feeling a certain level of pressure that probably wasn't necessarily fair to myself. But that's where I was. So someone very close to me suggested that, why don't you get the people that you know from your past who've been there for you over the years to pray for you? And so what I did was uh, once a week for a month, I invited by telephone friends that I've had throughout the year, to gather with me and pray for me and do this sort of listening prayer that we offer every Sunday. If you're ever interested and want to have someone pray for you in this way, or you'll notice that our prayer team will share words about impressions they have that sometimes will line up with what's happening in your life. So part of the way people would pray for me is they would try and listen to the Holy Spirit and offer things to encourage me. And I had one friend who said, "Um, I see this lighthouse with waves crashing all around it. And I feel like what God might be saying is that you are in that place in the lives of people whose faith is faltering. And it sort of hit me. 
And I don't know if you've ever seen this picture before. It's, it's pretty famous. And I don't know if this is what the person praying for me was thinking of, but this is the image that came to mind. And it's a very powerful one. It's an award-winning photo. I don't know if you can see it, but there's actually a person standing outside the door. This is a real photo. It's not photoshopped. Um, as the waves are about to come crashing around. Now, there's a lot of buzz and uh, rumors about this photo over the years, and one of the rumors was that the waves actually caught that man up and carried him away to sea, and he died. Not true. Uh, Actually, this photo is one of a series that were taken very close together, and you can watch the whole wave come in, and at the last second, he sort of dives back in and closes the door, and he's fine. And I feel like, in a lot of ways, this is part of what our church has been in the lives of a lot of people who feel like their faith is faltering. They sort of find their way into our community. I've had a lot of conversations with people where they will tell me that this turned into sort of their last stop, where they realized it or not when they came in the doors. uh, They were wondering on some level if they wanted to even keep doing this. And they found a safe place in our church where they could talk through what they were thinking. And they've had an experience like the one you see in this image behind me. So this image has been and become significant to me about our church. And along the way, I think we've learned a few things about what can be helpful to developing a faith that can last through the biggest waves that hit our lives. A faith that actually helps us stand strong through those waves. And so today I'm going to share a few of those things. Things that I think can help us all, no matter where you're coming from, discover and develop a faith that's both attractive and can last for the long haul in your lives. Does that sound interesting? All right, so let's read our passage today, and then we'll start to talk about a few of these things. I'm reading from Mark chapter 10, four verses, starting in verse 13. It says this, People were bringing little children to Jesus for him to place his hands on them, but the disciples rebuked them. And when Jesus saw this, he was indignant, and he said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child, will never enter it. And he took the children in his arms. He placed his hands on them and blessed them. Now, this whole ministry year, we have been talking about the kingdom of God. We've been talking about how it's different from the way things normally work in the world. We talked about the difference it makes in our lives. We've talked about how Jesus describes it as uh, the good life. And today we're looking at how we can enter the kingdom of God. How can we actually step into what Jesus talks about as the blessed way to live? And in this passage, Jesus is actually very specific in describing how we can experience the kingdom of God. I don't know if you noticed it, but in verse uh, 15, he says, truly, I tell you, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. What we need to enter the kingdom of God is childlike faith. Okay? That sounds interesting. But what do we mean by childlike faith? Well, here's my best take. Childlike faith, I think we can see this in this passage, is wonder at the goodness of God. 
wonder at the goodness of God. Now you see in this passage, there's a combination of things happening. First, you have people who clearly expect something good from Jesus. They're bringing their children to him. They want him to bless them. They expect that if that happens, something good will be imparted into the lives of their children. But when Jesus points to the type of faith we need, he actually doesn't point to the adults. He points to the children that are gathered to him. And I wonder if that's not because children haven't yet learned to be cynical. And when they see something good, they tend to embrace it fully. I'll never forget many years ago, five, six, seven, eight years ago, uh, we had a party at our house during the middle of the day. It was a summer day and sunny, but all of a sudden, this quick flash thunderstorm hit. I don't think it lasted more than five or ten minutes, and then it was gone, and the sun came right back out. Now, when that happens, a lot of times what will appear in the sky is a rainbow because it's so bright, and there's still so much uh, humidity and moisture in the air, and that's what happened. And we just happened to be out on the porch. I think we might have even been watching the storm. And we were there with a three- or four-year-old boy. His name was Nat. And I remember this rainbow, bright, as bold as you've ever seen, appears in the sky. Now, for the adults, we're like, oh, cool. Check out that. That's That's a cool rainbow. But for Nat, who'd never seen a rainbow before, he just laughed, cackled, howled. It just came out of him, spontaneous. The wonder at what he was seeing was overwhelming. Through the eyes of a child, with unhindered wonder, it was just fully expressed. People of faith, you know, you've probably experienced that this is where it often starts. Most of us here can remember a time when this first hit you, when the idea that, wow, God actually is good, and he actually loves me, and he's active in the world and in my life, and that blew your mind. It was kind of a whoa experience. And if you're curious about faith here today, and don't know what you think, and are open to something new, this is probably part of what you're hoping for, right? Some realization that blows your mind, that changes your perspective on everything, that causes you to view the world and live your life a completely different way, where your mind is blown, your heart is blown. The rainbow suddenly becomes personal and you experience wonder. And that season can last for a long time. And for the folks that I was talking to back in 2014, they all had moments and seasons like this. Yet here they were, ready to pitch it all. And if you're in that place, if you've been in that place, if you might be in that place someday, if you'd rather not get to that place, if you are looking for a faith that can keep the wonder alive, let me share with you a few things that we've learned over the years are very helpful. And let me share you with them in the form of three questions to consider. Three questions to ask to keep childlike faith. The first is this. What do I think the story is? In general, and this may not be true for you, 
But I think we think the story is something like this. If I believe, if I'm faithful, things will work out for me. God will protect me and bless me. And you know what? In general, I think that is exactly what we can expect. There are plenty of scriptures and stories about how God blesses the humble and the faithful and opposes the proud and the wicked. We just finished a five-week series on what are known as the Beatitudes, where Jesus says, blessed are those who, blessed are those who. And you know what? I think he was right every time. And I think if we embrace those perspectives, if it becomes part of who we are, our lives will be blessed. And we will experience a more fulfilling life, a better life than we could if we didn't. And I believe that in a profound and powerful, woe, life-changing way. And while I believe that, and I'm confident to recommend it to all of you, and that's kind of what I do every week, it's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. We want it to be. If that were the whole story, it would fit very nice and neatly into the American story that we're all very familiar with, which is work hard and everything will work out for you. But let me just say this. If this is all we expect, we're setting ourselves up for disappointment. Disappointment that will steal the wonder from our faith. You see, believe the right things, do the right things, and everything will work out. This is not actually the story that Jesus offers us. It's not the story of Christian faith. It's not the story that we can see in the Bible. It's not the story that actually can provide for you a faith that will really last. Think about the stories in the Bible. Other than Jesus, the story that takes up probably the biggest chunk of scripture space is the story of Joseph. Do you know the story of Joseph? You don't have to. Joseph has a really interesting story. And right in the middle of it, after really not doing anything wrong except kind of being a punk, he spends 12 or 14 years either as a slave or in jail. And he keeps doing everything right and nothing works out for him. Elijah, the most famous prophet from the Old Testament, does everything right, has this Huge showdown between his God and these other gods, and his God wins the day in dramatic, profound fashion. And he expects then that the king and queen of Israel will want to turn to his God, the God of the Bible. And you know what happens? They decide they want to kill him. It doesn't work out. They're after him. He goes on the run into the wilderness. Some of you have heard of a person named Jesus. What is the story of Jesus? It's a lot of things. And it's a story where we see the protection of God. There are times when people want to kill Jesus and he just sort of walks through the crowd miraculously and he doesn't get harmed. But there's also a crucial part of his story where after doing everything right, being completely faithful, trusting in God with all his heart, praying like no one has ever prayed before, he finds himself on a cross. You can do everything right. This is part of the story. You can do everything right. This is the Christian story. You can do everything right and end up on the cross. 
In fact, Jesus tells us to expect this. He says, you will have trouble here. That's his message, part of it. You will have trouble here. Get ready to take up your cross if you want to follow me. You know, one of the things Jesus promises is that you will have trouble here. So the story isn't believe, do the right thing, and you will always be protected. And let me tell you something. I really would like it to be that. You know, when I was 19, 20, 21 year old, I was much more okay with the idea of, oh, part of the call to follow Jesus, it means that there'll be some pain. I like seeing myself as a commando. I like seeing myself as passionate and radical. And I was a little more okay with the fact that the story of Jesus included some suffering. In general, I do think the story is blessing for doing and following Jesus, but there are moments significant times where pain enters into the story. But something changed along the way. I got married. I love my wife. I don't like the idea that I can't control everything in the world and everything that would happen to her. In the past two years, actually less, I've had two children. I don't want to see them hurt or abused or suffer in some sense. I want a system where I can guarantee that they'll be protected no matter what. Where if I do X, Y, and Z, I'm covered. Nothing could possibly go wrong. I want that. And I can choose that perspective. The only problem is it's not the perspective that Jesus offers me. And it's not the way real life works. The hope of Jesus is certainly that he does reward us for following him. There is blessing. But a big part of the hope is that when disappointment comes, when pain comes, when things are broken... When death comes, it will be followed by resurrection. Where there is sin, there will be redemption. Not that my life won't be affected by sin, mine and others, but when it is, it'll be flipped on its ear. The story is, follow me. I'll lead you into a life you never imagined. It'll be amazing as it says in your notes, but painful at times. And I'm telling you this now so that you can expect it. So that when these things happen in your life, you're not shaken. You don't want to give it all up. And there are so many other messages in our culture that say, do the right thing, work hard, never give up on your dreams, and it's going to work out for you. It, it doesn't work. There are certain things you can't control. In general, yes. In totality, no. And if that's what you expect, and if your source of wonder comes from everything always working out, you're setting yourself up. It won't last. And I think Jesus knows this. 
So after guaranteeing trouble, he says, but take heart. I have overcome the world. It's not the story of guaranteed victory in every situation. It's the story of death and resurrection, the story of redemption, the story of renewal. The promise is not no pain, but rather when it does come, every last betrayal, every last abuse, every last failure will be redeemed, will be overcome. So a helpful question to ask is what do I think the story is? What have I been expecting? Another helpful question to ask is, what do I think I have to believe? This is a good one. This is a good one right now. Is there something that you think you have to believe or do to be a follower of Jesus that you just can't buy into? Now, let me say first that following Jesus should absolutely challenge us. Absolutely. It should be a catalyst for change in our lives. And we should expect Jesus to change us. And we don't want to, nor should we expect to edit the parts of his teachings that we don't like to suit ourselves. That's not what I'm talking about. We're talking about in this whole season how to enter the kingdom of God. And Jesus is the king of the kingdom in every sense. That being said... It's important, listen to this, it's important to remember that none of us start following Jesus in a vacuum, without influence. People help us, they lead us, they teach us. We find Jesus in the midst of a system that people give us. They have an approach to faith, we all do, and they, with a good heart and the best of intentions, impart that to us. And you know what, normally it's very helpful. And I'm doing that right now. (laughs) I'm giving you a perspective. I'm trying to impart something to you. I hope and think that it'll be helpful. And we begin to follow and continue to follow Jesus in the midst of a culture that likely has lots of great things about it. But those systems, those approaches, those cultures are not the same thing as Jesus. And they're not perfect And there are Christians around the world who have very different systems, different takes, and live them out in strikingly different cultures than what you've grown up with or what you've experienced in your life. And they love Jesus and are following him with all their hearts. And what I'm saying is you might not have to believe the thing that you think you have to to faithfully follow Jesus. You may not have to vote a certain way. You may not have to condemn certain people to hell or choose between faith and science. Make sure the question that is bothering you is the right question. Did you hear that? Make sure the question that is bothering you is the right question. Uh, A way that's helpful to think about this is, uh, I, I heard this once, start in the deep end of the pool. What do I mean? Start in the part of the Christian faith that is the most essential. Those are the biggest questions. What do I think about Jesus? Who is he? Do I believe that? Hmm. What do I think about his death and resurrection? These are deep 
end questions. This is where you can dive in without scraping the bottom. That's the essential stuff. And that's where following Jesus begins and where it really lives. It's connecting to those things. The cultural stuff, the political stuff, the hot-button stuff. That's all important. I'm not saying it's not. I'm not trying to belittle it. But it's also shallow in stuff. It affects our lives. It can be important. But it's not the essence of faith in Jesus. And people all over the world have different takes and perspectives. People, people who follow Jesus, who love Jesus, who look to Scripture to help sort out their lives and how they view things. But when we move those shallow end things to the center of our faith, we're in danger of hitting bottom, scratching our knees, making something the most important that really isn't. And you can sort through shallow ended things. You can let some cultural things that you've experienced from the past go. You don't have to adopt everything that you've experienced. You can let some theological perspectives go. You can keep what's helpful. You can reimagine things that aren't. You can keep Jesus in the center and hold the rest with an open hand. And I say hold the rest with an open hand because this is where the wonder lives. The wonder doesn't live in nailing everything down and being certain of everything you believe and how everything works. That's boxing things in. That's taking the wonder out of faith and cataloging everything. It's the stories in the library that are full of lump that are full of wonder, not the organizational structure, which isn't bad. It's helpful to be able to find books. But the idea here is that you don't have to understand everything perfectly right now. And in fact, if you think you do, that's like the worst place to be. God is bigger when we understand that we have so much more to learn. And what we're after, what can keep the wonder and connection to the goodness of God in our lives is ever-revealing truth. And I'm not saying you can't have deep convictions now. You certainly can. I feel like I certainly do, personally. But I don't feel like I've figured everything out. And I know I can be wrong about things. And my encouragement to you is to be open to this. And here's how I know it. I know it because I'm a pastor, but not because I'm a pastor. I know it because I'm a pastor, which means I know a lot more pastors than you do. And I don't think I've ever met a pastor who, when asked about a sermon that he or she wrote 10 years ago, doesn't shudder. Like, oh, they wouldn't be kind of hesitant to read what they actually wrote or listen to what they actually said, because in 10 years... There's a lot of learning, hopefully, that happens. There's ups and downs. There's some of this, these painful things that I've been pointing to that you come out on the other end and you understand life differently. You understand God differently. You understand that you know more and how much more you don't. The world gets bigger, hopefully. The wonder of God grows through those experiences. 
And you look back, and I think about sermons that I know that I preached 10 years ago. And I'm like, whoa, (laughs) do I have to think about that? Think of it this way, you know, Christianity is the only at least major religion that I know of where the truth isn't a doctrine, it isn't a book, it isn't a philosophy, it's not an approach to life, it's a person. Jesus famously said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So in following Jesus, the truth can't be nailed down 100% because it's a person. You understand that? Think of it this way. I've been married 15 years. Let's just give me five years of being married, okay? So let's give me some experience being married, some time to get to know Becca a little bit better. Let's say after our five-year anniversary, I sit down and I write down everything I know about her, everything I understand about Becca, what she loves, what she's passionate about, everything I've learned, all the mistakes I've made, and what I've learned through those things. I write them all down. What would happen if 10 years later, at our 15th anniversary, I tried to use what I wrote down 10 years ago to interact with and love and serve Becca? It would be a terrible mess. Because in that 10 years, a lot has changed. And Lord, help me, I know her better now, certainly, than I did 10 years ago. She's a person. It's a process. It's a relationship. That's cliche now. You need a relationship with Jesus. But there's an essence of truth to that. Following, being a Christian is following a person. It's following Jesus. It's an ongoing, developing relationship of understanding. And that's how conviction goes deeper and deeper and deeper. The convictions you have about a person you love after 15 years, so much deeper than five. But it's not because you figured that person out and you wrote a book about it, and now you don't have to think or engage anymore. It's ongoing. It's developing. And if that's true with people, how much more with Jesus? An open hand doesn't mean you don't have deep convictions. It means you can be humble about about those convictions, that they can continue to develop and change and go deeper. A third question I think can be really helpful, to keep the wonder, to have faith for the long haul, to have an attractive faith for the long haul. And that is this, who do I think I am? Who do I think I am? That, and I don't mean that as a scold, like a finger wag, who do you think you are? I mean, what I mean is this. If you've gotten really good at faking being religious, and there's not, not a, a no-shame environment, but if you're honest with you, if you've gotten really good at looking good, I think I have some advice. Stop. It's going to kill you can kill your faith. You know, if you feel weak in your faith, if you have questions, the power behind the story that Jesus gives us is actually released through honesty. A little bit of vulnerability. To keep the wonder, it's good to be what I'm calling today powerfully weak. 
and share this with the people around you. Paul was a big, famous early Christian, planted a ton of churches, started a lot of churches all over uh, the Middle East and Europe. And he wrote this. It's part of Christian scripture now. This is Jesus talking to him. Jesus says to him, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And then Paul continues to say, Therefore, I will boast, I'll tell people, I'll brag, all the more gladly about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest on me. Now, God can and sometimes does work through our weakness and failures despite us. He's gracious. But there's another much more powerful way that our weakness can be used by God. It's a way that we can actually partner with him rather than live a facade. Honesty. Admitting our weaknesses has the effect of releasing the power of God in our lives. And this is what Paul's doing here, even as he writes this letter. If you read the the whole little passage here, Paul starts talking about this thing he calls his thorn in the flesh. It's this major weakness he has. He doesn't say what it is. He says it's uh, just this thorn. And so for us today to read that, that sounds, you know, kind of vague, right? But to his original readers, it wasn't vague at all. And commentators think that it was so obvious and so clear that his readers knew exactly what Paul was talking about. But to us, and I think this is by the grace of God, it's obscured. We don't know what he's talking about. Which means this, every one of us can relate to Paul. Because we've all got something that we're trying not to show people. And Paul, who seems kind of high and lofty sometimes, all of a sudden becomes very real and approachable. What's your thorn in the flesh? And for our discussion today, specifically, what keeps you from embracing faith or makes you feel unstable in your faith? And we might think that ignoring or hiding the things that bother us that aren't working, that lead to doubt, that's protecting our faith. The opposite is true. This approach actually limits the opportunities for God to really move in our lives, for his power to be made perfect. Things like happiness, peace, security, is in part wrapped up in understanding this in a very general sense, but also in a very specific sense. Specific in that being open about where we are, being vulnerable, can release incredible power in our lives. And that's amazing to experience. And that's also where the wonder comes from. Even in my weakness. This is where I'm experiencing God. I don't know where you're coming from or what you're thinking. A few years ago, after all of these conversations I had, I actually did a group called Faith Reimagine that was a participant-led group where we talked about the things that bother us about our faith that keep us either from engaging with faith or bring us to the edge of maybe wanting to just forget about it all. I'm thinking about doing a group like that again. So if you're interested in just a little bit of honesty, I'm not saying you've got to come and bear your whole soul, but if you can 
just talk a little bit about the things that are troubling to you. There's enough people that want to do that. I want to do it again. So on your bulletin, there's this little, uh, on the connect card, this little space on the back that's blank where you can write in other things. Just write, faith reimagined. And if enough people are interested, we'll do it again. All right. So to kind of wrap things up, where are all of these questions headed? And we've said all along that we're looking for an approach to faith that leaves intact childlike faith or wonder at the goodness of God. And I think that where we're headed here is this. And that is a hallmark, not the only thing, but I think a significant hallmark of a faith that lasts is what I'm calling today second wonder. It's a wonder that's different than the wonder that you start with when you first encountered that God was real and alive. And if you're on the front end of faith, still thinking about things, this is where you want to end up eventually. First wonder is childlike, but it's also immature. Everything is simple and awesome, right? Every time you read the Bible, your mind is blown. Every sermon you hear, your mind is blown. Every prayer you pray is answered in mind-blowing ways. But the wonder is also immature because it hasn't been tested by the painful events of real life yet. And so you don't know if it actually works long-term. And when real life hits, a relationship ends. An illness comes into you, the life of someone you care deeply for. It seems to me that we have three choices. One is to try to pretend that real life hasn't hit. (laughs) To ignore, deny, or beat it off and try and sort of return to the womb of our first wonder. To fight to reclaim what once was. I'm not a big fan of that because I kind of think you can't unsee what you've seen. A second option is to pitch it. Whatever you've experienced to you can become proof that it's all fraud. I'm not a big fan of that one. I probably wouldn't be here today if I was. What I'm suggesting is the most helpful and where we want to land is a third place. And that is this. To find that God is actually in the uncertainty. That the story is different than we thought. That we can reimagine parts of our faith without being in danger of losing Jesus. And that by admitting that we're in process, we can, that can actually connect us more to the power of God than we've ever experienced. And this new, all those things can and are full of wonder, but they're full of wonder that makes sense in the real world. It allows us to sort of have our feet on the ground and our head in the clouds, to be amazed by God. How could all this be working together? And this new world of wonder is suddenly actually bigger than the first world of wonder that we thought was so amazing in the first place. 
And so it's a faith that's still childlike in its wonder, but mature because it's big enough to handle real life. This is where we want to land. This is the type of faith, if you're looking into faith that you want. But it's challenging to get there. And let me tell you just one thing and why, and this is where we'll end. Because it almost always comes back to giving up control. All these questions we asked today, what do you think the story is? The story we want is one that we can control. What do you think you have to believe? We want to control things by nailing down what we have to believe to the nth degree. Who do I think I am? We want to project who we want people to see who we are as opposed to being vulnerable. We want to control. As human beings, we're always trying to push the faith out of our faith. And that's how we lose the wonder. And that's how our spiritual progression gets stunted. It's so tempting to trade childlike maturity for childlike control. 